0: Well, we're, go, welcome to Kootenai Community. We're in 1 Corinthians 13 again. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you that at any given time in our lives, you know exactly what it is that we need. You know exactly how to communicate to us through your word, your finished word. And Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is always about the business of working in us and working out through us your glory. And so this morning as we study your word, would you bring to mind those things that need to be changed, Those things that need to be strengthened and help us to be better witnesses for you, for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And might we be a a ministry to one another in love, the love that is talked about in this chapter, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to open by reading the entire chapter again. It's a nice short chapter, and that way we can maintain context. Chapter 13, oh, and, oh, never mind, I was going to say I had it on cease at one point there and I wasn't telling you to stop talking by leaving that up there so (laughs) first Corinthians chapter 13 if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal and if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries actually you know what Oh, we'll keep reading here and if I have the gifts of prophecy and know all mysteries And all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child... I used to speak as a child, to think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide, faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these three is love. When we finished off last week in... uh, Verse 10, I believe we were in. Let me double check that. No, we were in verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. We talked about the, the difference between being done away and ceasing. Done away is an exterior or an outside force acting on the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of knowledge, and doing away with them at the necessary time. Whereas tongues, the word is cease, and it is in the middle voice, which means it would do of its own self, stop being, stop happening. It just did away with itself. That's what is used, in the, that's what the middle voice implies, or actually directs in translating the Greek. So that was verse 8. And then in verse 9, Paul says, he reminds the Corinthians again, of the fact that none of us are perfect. And they were probably surprised at that because they sure thought some of them were. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. This is not to imply that knowledge, that the knowledge that the scripture gives is only partial. It is referring to the fact that humans, we humans are imperfect and unable to accumulate and assimilate all of the knowledge that God could have revealed to us should he choose to do so. Human prophecy, the speaking forth of the excellencies of God, is also only possible, only partial because of the infinite, the finite nature of humanity. The gifts are complete, but the humans to whom the gifts are given are limited in their abilities. Verse 8 was the last mention of tongues in this chapter, and rightly so because it self-ceased at the end of the apostolic time, long before the advent of what is perfect, which we will talk about uh, in verse 12. It would be quite impossible for the Corinthians or for us to do anything but to know and prophesy in part. There will come a time when our minds are perfected that we will know just as we have been known, actually in verse 12. But for now, our limited ability, coupled with the finished word of God, is more than enough. We're limited in our abilities. We're not perfect. We, we, we We are fallen humanity, but he has given us the perfect word, the finished word, and that is what enables us to become all that God wants us to be by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we know in part and we prophesy in part, not any fault of the gifts, but the fault of fallen humanity. Any questions or comments about that? Unless there's somebody perfect here who would like to speak to that from a different perspective. Good, I'm glad I didn't hear anybody. So, verse 10, he says, But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. There are a number of interpretations as to what the perfect is. Some believe it refers to the completion of Scripture. But if so, then knowledge and prophecy would already have stopped, and the church would have been without their benefit. Others believe that the perfect is the rapture of the church. But The gifts and the word translated done away means a complete finish of those gifts, not to be resumed. They would then not be able to exist during the tribulation and kingdom period. Those gifts would have been done away, stopped, not to be resumed. So that can't be the the, the proper interpretation. In the same way, perfect cannot refer to the maturing or the completion of the church, since this would imply that we were standing in the Lord's presence This would have been preceded immediately by the rapture, so this view has been eliminated. A fourth view is that the perfect refers to Christ's second coming. The word translated perfect is in the neuter, which eliminates reference to a person. Again, prophecy, preaching, and teaching of the word during the kingdom period would have been unable to resume because of the Greek word used for done away. According to some some Old Testament prophets, there will be plenty of preachers and teachers in the kingdom period. The last view, and the likely most correct view, is the one that perfect refers to the final, eternal, heavenly state of the elect. All of the spiritual gifts, all of the spiritual gifts are for a time. That is, they are temporal. And each of them has their own time period. Some will cease, like the the sign gifts. Some will be done away with by an outside agency. And that outside agency is partially when we are in the presence of the Lord. In the heavenly kingdom, as the elect, we won't need the gift of knowledge anymore. We will have the encyclopedia in front of us, the Lord Himself. We won't need the gift of prophecy. The forthtelling of every possible vicissitude of the Scriptures will be available to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We will be in the presence of the one who gave the word. So some are for a shorter period than others, but in the end, all of them will be done away. But Paul makes the point throughout this chapter that love will last for eternity because it is the essential nature of God. One of his essential characteristics is love and it will never be done away with. And that's why I've always called it or tried to call it the infrastructure upon which all the gifts hang. It is the piping and the I don't, want to, I don't want to humanize it too much, but it's the piping and the electrical conduits and the hinges and all of those things that make the gifts effective. Love is the substructure. It's most important and it never will be done away. So when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. We won't need knowledge. We won't need those other gifts because we'll be in the presence of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit themselves. Any comments or any additions or corrections? And Justin, if you have any additions here, they are welcome. I feel pretty silly up here teaching First Corinthians 13 and 14 when the expert is sitting in the back. <laughs> do you want to perform some of the surgery? You know how to do the cuts right. So anything you want to add, I'm good with that. And isn't that going to be wonderful? I wonder what, I won't have to say that about the scripture anymore. I wonder what that obscure verse in seconds, well, oh, I actually know what it means. <laughs> It'll be so wonderful. So verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So the word for child is metaphorically speaks of someone who is childish, untaught or unskilled, simple-minded or immature. Now that is not to be used as a pejorative in speaking to the body here, but compared to the father, compared to the knowledge that the father has. What would you say about our knowledge? It's pretty childish. What's that? There ain't none. Yeah, you got it right. Compared to his insight, how would you rank our insight on a scale of one to 10? Minus 12 billion. Um, So, Paul is making a comparison here. The Greek word translated child is metaphorically used of someone untaught and unskilled. In the Septuagint, it was often used to translate words such as simple or simple-minded or naive, such as in Proverbs 132. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Since a ch- as a child thinks childish thoughts and reasons to con- conclusions as a child and therefore speaks as a child, So in comparison, when we go to be with the Lord and have all of our limitations stripped away, the comparison to then will be that we are like children here. We are unskilled, we are untaught, we are incomparably less able than we will be when we are in the presence of the Father. The transition, by the way, from child to man in Jewish culture was instantaneous. And so this could have been in the back of their minds as they were thinking and reading this. We're thinking about and reading this. At the bar mitzvah, a child went into the celebration and a man came out. And the change was in the celebration or the recognized by the celebration. So will our transition be when we are, elect, when we are trans, translated into the kingdom of Christ. Instantaneously, we will go from being childish to being mature. And that's going to be wonderful. So this immaturity is not to say that it is sinful but simply a result of the fall and our loss of direct connection with God as Adam had in the garden. Once we are physically translated into the kingdom of light, we will no more speak, think, or reason as we did in this life. Even the most brilliant among us will confess in front of the Father that they were but children. They will will bow their heads in humility, recognizing The wisdom of the Father. Our speaking and our thinking and our reasoning will be shed of all the limitations that we have as fallen humanity. Now, we will never know everything as God does because guess what? We're not God. We ain't him. But the difference between here and there will be orders of magnitude different. Orders of magnitude different. So, yes, you'll still be Lanny. You will just have all the, strip, the limitations that were imposed upon you from Adam's fall, Adam and Eve's fall. Those will be then stripped away and you'll be able to know far more effectively and officially. You'll be able to love perfectly as the Father loves. You'll, all the limitations that we have here will be stripped away, but it will still be you. Does that help? And, and I think there's an aspect of this that is not quite comprehensible. Uh, anybody else want to comment on that? I mean, it's, it's going from imperfection to, to perfection. Jim? Uncursed and unfallen. Yeah. The sin cast will be removed. Yeah, it's, it's like one of those situations that occur when you have not understood something for many, many years and then God gave you understanding of a particular area of scripture and it was like all the light bulbs went on and you were excited. You're still you, but you have a new understanding. That's a kind of a small variation of what we're talking about. We'll all be the same people. We'll recognize each other. We'll know each other. But we will know each other far better and we won't worry about what people know about us. <laughs> that too. Does that help, man? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of what happens between now and the translation into heaven is a mystery. Still a mystery. Still a, and, and it's going to be one of those things that it's like one guy said, how will I know if I see a rattlesnake? You'll know it when you see it. You'll know him when you see him. You will understand when you're there. Those are things that are hard to communicate sometimes. So, just as children tend to occupy themselves with things of temporary value, so the Corinthians, and by extension us, were occupying themselves with gifts that had temporary use. Excellent use, to be sure, but necessarily temporary. And they were falsifying them. They were going to the next negative step. They were actually falsifying the gifts, assuming gifts that they didn't have because they were showy and made... uh, would give someone a name, give someone fame, give someone apparent abilities that they didn't have. Um, They needed to occupy themselves with something of eternal value, which Paul was saying, that's love. You occupy yourself with the eternal verity of love, and then when you occupy yourself with that, the exposition and the living out of your gifts will be hung on that love, and they will be useful as, as we looked at earlier in this chapter, the kindness will be the kind of useful kindness that looks for how to help people. The, the patience will be with people, and it will be long, true patience. The, the jealousy, there will be no jealousy of what other people have. You won't be arrogant. It'll be the kind of love that Paul has been outlining preceding this, in preceding, in these preceding verses. So by the way, um, in this age of feelings and safe spaces and Offenses. The three words translated speak, think, and reason are specific Greek words that mean speak, think, and reason. What do you know? The word for think does not mean feel. It comes from the Greek word for the general concept of thought. And the word for reason expands on that coming from the Greek meaning to reckon or to work things out to think things through. The idea of doing away with childish things as well does not imply that these things passed away in growing up, but rather Paul is saying that he actively put these things away with decision and finality. The tense of the verb is perfect, which implies, or not implies, bespeaks of something that happened with ongoing consequences. He made the decision. There's a time when we stopped thinking like kids, and it was in different areas that it happened to us. We stopped thinking like kids maybe in finances at a different time when we stopped thinking like kids and buying that stupid car we really didn't need. <laughs> but the time came when we put away childish things and we said, I can't do that anymore. You can only do that when you can get away with it and I can't get away with it anymore. <laughs> Bad reason. So Paul said, the childish has gone away. When, again, when we, when we tra- are translated into the kingdom of light, it's gonna be marvelous. All of the immature things will be put away. So thanks for your question, Lanny. Any other comments or questions about verse 11? For verse 12. I was trying to find some indication of what the ancients had to deal with when they were looking in a mirror. The mirror on the left there is a pretty good idea. You didn't, even on highly burnished bronze, you don't get a clear view of what you're looking like. If you had a tan and you're looking at yourself in a bronze mirror, you won't see the tan. (laughs) You know, if that's important to you, don't use a bronze mirror in July. But it says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I've also been fully known. In Paul's day, a mirror was simply a burnished piece of metal, generally copper, and it would only give an indistinct reflection. Comparing it to today's mirrors is is a quantum leap in efficiency. But Paul, he he is saying that when we enter heaven, we will be face-to-face with God himself, and all the answers to everything we ever wondered about will be answered, will be given. All those answers will be clear, compelling and a fantastic, and we will shake our heads and say, yes, that is how it ought to have been. I'm glad it was that way, even though I didn't think so sometimes back down there. We only know things partly today. In that time, we will know them fully, apparently as fully as we are known by God himself. Now, an interesting uh, aspect of the the concept of ancients, um, a metallic mirror there we are, not made of glass, ancient mirrors merely made of polished metal only produced an indistinct image. So to get an accurate picture, the viewer had to look from several different angles or standpoints. This has profound implications for doing theology. That is why we need to look at what God's word from different angles. And what are those angles? Not from my perception, but from the other areas of scripture that comment on that angle. Scripture is its best commentary. And so, we need to be able to look at different angles. And so, when we look at love, we can look at what Peter said about it, we can look at what Paul said about it, what James said about it, what Jesus himself said about it, and begin to develop a fuller and more effective picture of what love is, rather than just the burnished copper picture of one section of Scripture. Not that Scripture is imperfect, but that we are imperfect, and we need more comment from God himself, which is in his word, his finished, sufficient word. So, that's, can, can you see those pretty clearly back there, the difference between an old mirror and a new mirror? That's, that was a fairly good rendition. Um, you know, I'd like the old one. Can't see the imperfections. <laughs> As you get older, you get quite a few more imperfections. So any questions about, comments about verse 12? But now these three, Paul says, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three. The greatest of these, or the greater, a better translation would be the a greater of these, is love. <laughs> Paul ends this sublime tra- chapter with the three great virtues of life. Faith, hope, and love. It is significant that in verse 7, faith and hope are an outworking of love. Where he says, love bears all things, then it believes all things. then it, That's faith. Then it hopes all things. That's hope. And then it endures all things. Those are outworkings of the the gift that God has given us of love. But they are in and of themselves virtues as well. One cannot miss the irony that Paul has built through this entire chapter, stressing the importance of love as the be-all and the end-all, while downplaying the showy, messy, tongues-loving Christians at Corinth. Indeed, in chapter 14, he will take this tension to an extreme in attempting to get the Corinthians to back off from misusing this sign gift. So what can we say about these three except that the first two Faith and hope are not something that the eternal God possesses. Did you ever think about that? Does God need faith? He is what we have faith in. Does God need hope? He doesn't have to hope for anything. He is at the beginning and at the end. We need faith and hope. Now his son, when he came to earth, he was tempted in all areas as we are. Jesus Christ had faith. Jesus Christ had hope. But the Father, the triune God, unnecessary. He knows the future, (coughs) the past, and the present as one, and being eternal, omnipotent, the power of all existence. He has no reason to hope for anything. But he does love in the scriptures. But love in the scriptures says that he is, in fact, love. The word love is part of God's eternal nature. Tongues, miracles, faith, hope, administrations, shepherding, and all of the other wonderful gifts that have been given to the church will end. Some have ended. They will have served their purpose in strengthening the church, building up believers, and propagating the gospel. But when we are face-to-face with the Father, we as created beings will still have faith and hope. That is, we will still have expectation and confidence, but what will continue to reign paramount there as well will be love. When one attempts to exposit this chapter, the reality comes home that we are only able to just touch the surface of the depths of the beauty that Scripture holds in every area of Scripture. But in this one, it just indeed this is true for every word on every page, but to some degree, some greater degree, it is true of 1 Corinthians 13. And that's actually a personal opinion. Okay? Don't take that to the bank. That, don't take my personal opinions to the bank. First Timothy in Scripture says this. Second Timothy, excuse me, 316. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in in righteousness. This remarkable text, however, holds immense teaching and pointed reproof, reproof, blessed correction, and welcome training in one of the greatest aspects of all of life and indeed one of the most important characteristics of God himself, which is love. It is incumbent upon every Christian to understand and by the power of the Holy Spirit, alone implement these things into their lives. The Corinthians were not doing that. And Paul gave them this remonstrance and direction out of the love of the Holy Spirit for them. This entire chapter, which we talked about when we started, is another one of those that looks like a diamond dropped in a muddy road. Problems all the way up through chapter 12 and problems from 14 on. But in the middle of it all, 1 Corinthians 13, this jewel that you can look at from all the different facets of love. Leon Morris put it this way. He said, The commentator cannot finish writing on this chapter without a sense that soiled and clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. Here, is what, is, here what is true of all scripture is true in a special measure, that no comment can be adequate to so great a theme. Yet no commentator can excuse himself from the duty of trying to make plain what these matchless words have come to signify for him. And no Christian can excuse himself from the duty of trying to show in his life what these words have come to mean for him. So as we go through it, we simply recognize how far above us Scripture is in the magnitudes of beauty above us that it is. But we still do our very best to understand it and by the holy spirit to implement it into our lives so that we become the things that are mentioned here so in 1st corinthians 13 as we have early mentioned one of the most famous and studied chapters in the bible is a remarkable we have re, we've noted that it is a remarkable treatise paul uses hyperbolic hyperbole hyper, <laughs> hyperbole hyperbole that's actually it could be pronounced that way i'm hooked on phonics hyperbole you know, expansive uh, exaggeration, I guess you can say. Direct teaching, anthropomorphisms, metaphor, and comparisons to bring home this wonderful teaching about the greatest virtue. He ends the chapter with a comparison and love wins out. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, and hope, among the other blessings God has given, all have their uses and all have their application, but everything hangs on love as the infrastructure of life. And so... A love checklist, if you want one, would look something like this. Love is immensely patient with the people in its life. Love is usefully kind and looks for ways to bless the recipient. Love does not envy the lot of others, but is glad when others are blessed material and in every other way. Love does not bring attention to itself. Love is unaware of its own abilities. Love has good manners. Love looks to the needs of others. Love is cool, calm, and collected. Love is... Love does not remember injustices committed against it. Love is not happy when anyone else is hurt. Love is delighted with the blessings and healings of others. Love covers the failings of others. Love believes the best about others. Love always hopes for the best about and for others. Love holds on and perseveres to the end for others. Love never fails. And so that would be a summation of this chapter if if one could be, and I feel pretty inadequate to the task, but that's what, uh, what came to me, it didn't come to me. I mean, just as I was studying the verse out, the word out, Paul said all those things. I just copied them over in my words. So any comments or questions about verse 13 or the entire chapter? Was that a good chapter? It's the best chapter in the Bible, because that's the one we were just in. I didn't think we'd make it to 14 today, but we're going to go ahead and get started on it. So let's uh, let's take a minute and read chapter fourteen, and we're going to read one through one through seven, or one through eight. Pursue love, Paul says. Pursue love. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching yet even lifeless things either flute or harp in producing a sound if they do not produce a distinction in the tones how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound who will prepare himself for battle so we're going to now comes that chapter which sheds so much light on the misuse of one particular spiritual gift one cannot miss the comparison paul is making between tongues and prophecy And for the purposes of the exposition of this chapter, the word prophecy will be almost synonymous with the word preaching. Spirit-empowered, Bible-centered preaching is that aspect of prophecy that is often called forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, telling. telling. As we discuss prophecy in this chapter, we will be using that definition. Forth-telling or preaching, not predicting the future. Future predictions were short, to the point, and limited even in the apostolic times when that aspect of the gift of prophecy would still have been so very important. Even during the time of Christ and the apostles, the existence of the Old Testament was far more important than predictions about the future. So today, we have the finished canon of Scripture, and we do not need, nor should we look for, predictions of the future. Indeed, because of the fact that the Scripture is finished and sufficient, we are right to be suspicious of and to reject prophetic announcements of that type. We have the finished, sure word of God. The time for prophecy passed. It will come again, but we are not in that time. So this chapter sets the stage for Paul's correction of one of the most egregious violations of Christian living that the Corinthians were committing. They had so taken themselves with the gift of tongues that they were apparently missing the more important gifts, primarily prophecy or forth preaching. The fact that tongues was a legitimate part of the early Christian church in the apostolic era is clear because Paul points out that even he spoke in tongues in verse 18. But he pounds home the fact again and again that to speak in in an unintelligible language edifies no one but the speaker unless there is an interpreter. And Paul wants all activity in the church to be beneficial to the whole church. A second aspect of disarray in Corinth was simply the fact that they were chaotic in their church services. As you read through 14, you can't help but see all the different things that he's calling and castigating them on. He actually has to give them a checklist from verses 26 through 40. It seems from the clear language of these verses that people were speaking out of turn, bobbing up and down, shouting and interrupting one another. It was more like a mob than a church service patterned after the upper room discourse and ceremony that the Lord Jesus provided for the apostles on the night before he was crucified. Indeed, that can be a pattern. That night before can be a pattern. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives the Corinthians plenty to think about. And by extension, he gives us the same things to think about. He closes chapter 14 with an all-encompassing statement that brings the entire teaching to a point. He says this to the Corinthians. He says, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. That would imply that things were being done improperly and in a disorderly manner. And he's calling them out on that. And the reason he said that is because God is a God of order, which is evident when we look at the creation and see the order and design therein, whether it is in the way animals are constructed, the way biology works, how math functions, everything is orderly that God has created. And the more we look into it, the more we see that order. Actually, that's what science is. It is looking into the things around us and discovering, as much as we are able, how the mind of God created such beauty. Another important aspect that we will see in the exposition of chapter 14, which was only mentioned earlier, is Paul's desire for the growth of the church body. This growth could only occur in the context of healthy worship, which included a proper exposition of scripture as mentioned by Luke in Acts chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 42, the, Luke says this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Indeed, Paul starts the chapter out encouraging the Corinthians to pursue love, pursue it, but to desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Archibald Robertson, in his critical and exegetical commentary in the first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, put it this way. He said, you are right, in desiring these supernatural gifts but take care that you do so from the right motive and the right motive is love those gifts which benefit others are to be preferred to those which glorify ourselves hence inspired preaching is more to be desired than tongues in the congregation tongues unless interpreted at once are a hindrance to worship and as I studied more and more of the ancient commentators as well as more modern ones from the 1800s on that seems to be the general theme that the, the sign gifts had a, po- had a point, had a place, but they passed away. And because they were showy, the Corinthians, and by extension us today, focus on those because we can make a name with ourselves for ourselves by doing those kinds of things. And Paul says, that is not what it's about. What it is about is love. And we've just seen in chapter 13, a checklist of what love means. And nowhere in that does it say love elevates yourself so you will be famous and light and make a lot of money and have a yacht or a large boat for the Sea of Galilee back then. That is not what love is about. So we're, they, he said, you're right in pursuing these gifts, but seek the important ones. And he says, pursue love. We're going to look at verse 1 and that's a, we'll probably get through verse 1, maybe verse 2. So he says, pursue love. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So pursue means to flee after, to chase, to carefully and thoughtfully go after something. Um, It's a rhetorical question, so there are no answers necessary, but all of you that are married in here, do you remember pursuing your wife? You didn't just hopefully haphazardly say, well, she, she knows what a, ch- what a gem she's getting. Of course she'll come after me. <laughs> you chased her until she got you. Got it. No, I remember when I finally, when my mother was matchmaking us, and I remember, wow, she's really cool. And so I began to organize my life around figuring out how to make her my wife in the right way. Uh, I remember that. It was, And that's, what, that's kind of the concept here pursue love chase it make it your object and what is that well just look back at chapter 13 that's what love is about so when Paul tells the Corinthians to pursue love it's not an idle challenge it's a command to actively daily persistently seek to be a loving Christian as defined in the preceding chapter and in other areas in Scripture where love is defined it's like he's saying okay I just finished explaining to you all the facets of the diamond of love Now, I want you to chase it hard every day and become the kind of person that is always and every day that kind of loving. While you are seeking after biblical agape love, go ahead and desire earnestly, that is, be zealous toward spiritual gifts. But most importantly, desire forth telling. So he's already giving them a command about weighing out the necessity of the different gifts. It should be your dream to be able to positively and effectively explain scripture. Because remember, the Father has elevated his word even above his name. Psalm 138 eight two, I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. First Peter 1, 24 and 25. And he's, I, doesn't that mean he's shouting at you when it's all caps? For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Matthew 5.18, Jesus himself said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is the first verse. This first verse begins the challenge that Paul maintains throughout the entire chapter for the Corinthians to focus on those gifts that bring help, teaching, edification, and blessing to the body of Christ at large and not just to the individual exercising the gift. That is not to say we are not going to be benefited from exercising our own gifts. And that's a good thing. But that should never be our focus. Our focus should be to bless the body at large and to propagate the gospel and to give glory to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, not to ourselves. Any comments about verse one? Questions? Trying to decide if we can end on verse two. Yeah, we can figure it out. We'll figure it out. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. Clearly, the mysterious gift of tongues as practiced in the apostolic age was showy and in a carnal way, very gratifying. Paul instructs the Corinthians here that when they are speaking in a tongue, especially when there is no interpreter, they are only speaking to God and themselves. There is no edification value to the church. He's not calling it a bad gift. He's simply pointing out the reality that when you're speaking in this way, the only benefit is to yourself, and, to, and God is the only one who can understand you. We can say the most common and culturally respectable things that everyone remembers in a manner that edifies and blesses people. We can use phrases and comments in a contextual way that links what we are saying to the great events of the past, but if we do this in an unknown language, that o- we are only benefiting from that conversation, which is a one-way conversation. For example, If I were to say to you, in the most eloquent and expressive way I could, that's actually a language, and I had Google tell me how to pronounce it. (laughs) Except you're supposed to do it after doing this. Can anybody guess what language that was? Okay, pretty close. Um, If I did this in the most enticing and eloquent way I could this morning, like I just did, it's doubtful that anyone in the audience would know what I was saying, even though it is a very common and well-known phrase rooted in American history. What if I changed it up to this, out libertatum, out mortum mihida? Which is saying the same thing in another language. Maybe some of you might have recognized a word or two, but you still don't know what I'm talking about. Now, if I were to say to you, give me liberty or give me death, instantaneously, you know, you would remember the phrase, you would remember his historical setting as a powerful phrase in an impassioned speak, speech that Patrick Henry made to the Second Virginia Convention on March 23rd, 1775 at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. Well, you may not have known all that, and I didn't either until I looked it up, but you would have known who it was. You wouldn't have thought it was somebody from Saturday Night Live, would you? You knew who You knew who I was quoting, didn't you? And... <laughs> He was calling the colonies to action, explaining to everyone present that the gathering masses of British troops bespoke only one plan, and that plan was to reduce the colonies to servitude. The phrase begets in our minds the thoughts and all kinds of thoughts and feelings, and it is edifying if used in proper context. But spoken in an unknown tongue, it is of no use at all. And so we're going to end today by talking simply about this. As God gives gifts to the church, and, and one of the ones we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks is the gift of tongues, as compared to what Paul would rather they were doing the gift of prophecy or telling. As he gives those gifts, God's intention is that they be used for the blessing, the edification of the church, the building up of the body, so that individuals in the church are blessed, are, are able to learn, are corrected in their mistakes are refreshed in their need to have a connection with the Savior and are blessed. And that we work, we work together as a, as a body of Christ to bring the glory of the Father to bear in the world so that the people know who the Father is. They know who the Son is. They know who the Holy Spirit is. They don't know it because we speak it in, we speak it in their language too, the language of the of the world, so that they know what is going on in the church. So that one of the things that they can say about the church is, oh, how they love one another. What's the chapter we just came off of? The love chapter. Oh, how they love one another. Oh, how they care for one another. And by extension, oh, how we care for those outside the church, outside the body of Christ. The gifts are given for blessing. They're given for edification. They're given for building. And Paul is going to ram that, that thought home through this entire chapter. Build one another. Care for one another. Love one another take care of one another. And one of the ways you do that is by exercising these superior gifts. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is open and accessible to us and that we need no prophecy. We need no special insight. We just need your word and your Holy Spirit every day so that we might honor you by changing our lives to match what you have commanded in scripture and by being able to live it out in front of others so that we can be a blessing to those around us, a blessing to the world, and vehicles through which the gospel can come. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.